what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. We all have an abundance of identities. I'm a woman, a wife, a mother. I'm a business owner, a writer, a podcaster. I'm a runner, a yoga practitioner, a paddleboarder. I'm an introvert, a book lover, and a new cat parent. I am many other things too. Now the professional world, as built by white men, has been a place where we leave our other identities at the door. We transform into whatever the job requires of us and try to ignore the rest. There's a passage that really encapsulates this in a book that I read earlier this year. It's called Having and Being Had by the writer Eula Biss. She writes about a conversation she had with her mom. Quote, the hardest part of working isn't the work, my mother tells me. It's the passing. She means passing as an office worker, dressing the part, performing the rituals of office life, and acting appropriately grateful for a 10-hour shift at a computer. I'm Turner McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores entrepreneurship for humans. Now, when we opt to forge our own path as business owners, it's easy to imagine that we'll escape these rituals, avoid assimilating to the expectations of the office. And sure, some of them we do escape from. But there are plenty we end up sticking with, like trying to be grateful for spending 10 hours in front of a computer. And there are others we adopt as part of our new work, the rituals of social media, networking, email responsiveness. It's not so much that dressing the part, performing the rituals, or adapting to your work environment is a bad thing. It's that there also needs to be space for the identities, responsibilities, and personal needs we have outside our job descriptions or client agreements. Making that space is one way we practice abundance. It might mean rearranging your schedule, or it might be a clause you add to your contract that acknowledges that missing an appointment or rescheduling because of a family need is not the end of the world. It could mean having a colleague you do a mutual mental health check with each week, or it could be as simple as acknowledging the transitional space at the beginning of meetings before you get down to business. This week, my guest is Angela Brown, a coach for luminaries and a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant for organizations. Part of our conversation is about the way she's learned to bring her whole self into her work, whether in her former work as a head teacher or in her current roles. But another key part of our conversation revolves around abundant curiosity, the kind that is willing to ask bold questions without needing to have definitive answers. My hope is that this conversation will inspire you to consider how you can make both space for your many identities in the way you work and make space for abundant curiosity. Now, let's find out what works for Angie Brown. Andy Brown, welcome to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. It is such a pleasure, Tara. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I've actually been wanting to have you on the podcast for quite a while. Um, and so when you reached out with some updates uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was just thrilled, first off, to get all of those exciting updates, and second, to have a really good excuse to get you on the show. Um, so... We're going to kind of explore what you've been up to over the last year, year and a half or so in this conversation. But to give us some context for that, um, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about your journey, and I'd love for our listeners to learn a little bit more about your journey. So could you trace your steps from a career in education to supporting women telling their stories to coaching luminaries and, of course, anything else in there that I missed? Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I am based. I am based in Denmark now, but I actually was based in the UK for a long time. I worked in the education system in the UK for about twenty years, and I, I like to reflect on the fact that I sought opportunities, probably as a consequence of the kind of schooling I had, where I grew up as 
one of the sole black faces among a sea of white faces. I saw opportunities when I got into teaching to work in communities in which it was quite evident that there was a lack of voice often and there were very few advocates. And there were kind of few and excellent uh, agents of change in those settings. So I was among a kind of little band of people who really wanted to do social justice work and were really interested in working with people who held protected characteristics or protected identities and giving voice to some of those kind of minoritized groups. I don't think I necessarily connected the work that I was doing in those schools when I first started teaching as an English teacher with my experiences growing up as that black child mm -hmm. among a sea of white ones. But certainly the, the early start of the work in supporting people who came from marginalised backgrounds was, was in my school days, in my own school days. And I quite quickly, once I, once I um, started teaching, got interested in leadership and interested in school leadership because I think it's, it's curiously attractive and repellent at the same time often. Attractive because with social justice work, I think it often feels as though there is such an opportunity to do good. Mm -hmm. And yet there is such an opportunity for it to be draining, for it to suck one's personal resources, for it to feel like you're never making progress. And actually the attractive won out. And so I went into school leadership quite early. I worked with um, an incredible head teacher who also wanted to ensure that there were opportunities for people who held marginalised identities to be in school leadership and to be an example of people um, for, for people in the community. And as soon as I got into school, into school leadership, it became evident that I couldn't just get into school leadership and be, you know, that black school leader who was being a great role model and being a black school leader. And, and you know, for context, only 3% of head teachers in the UK are black. So I was always within a really small minority. And even with that minority status, I kind of continued to seek opportunities to operate slightly outside of the mainstream. So I was described myself, Tara, as taking up these kind of liminal roles. I became mm. head teacher who worked in a setting for young people who had been excluded from mainstream schools. I became a head teacher of a, of a, a really exciting project to bring Steiner education into the mainstream and to locate it in an area of multiple deprivation. And I became a head teacher who, who worked in special schools. So I was constantly in these sort of liminal spaces being the minority black head teacher, but also just taking on this kind of other random projects just for the sake yeah. of difference. And, and again, I think the, the relationship and the sort of push and pull that I've always felt between wanting to create new spaces and different ways of talking about things and look at, look at topics and issues from a slightly different vantage point has been the trade of breadcrumbs. So I, I used to have this slight victim mentality. Why, do I, why don't I just have the normal jobs? Why is it that I always end up in these places? And, and then realised that actually I'd constructed it. This was, this was where I like to be. This is, this is where I like to operate. And so I found myself uh, leading a school, a startup school in a grade two listed building uh, bringing Steiner education into into a main, mainstream setting and also had managed to get that headship at the same time as having my, my child, who's my first and my only child. And so mm -hmm. I started this job when he was five months pregnant and um, the combination of hormones and hubris, I always describe that chapter of my <laughs> life, uh, kind of went into this leadership role and was pretty buffeted by the numerous challenges that came with being a a leader of, a, of a, an immense new startup project, but also being a new mum. And it was around that time that I had um, people reaching out to me, other black women who were also interested in getting into leadership and who had witnessed me move from one headship into another and were now seeing me 
with the, the poster girl for, and you can do this with a baby. They believed the narrative probably more than I did, but nevertheless re- reached out and, and were interested in, in me talking to them about my, my experiences and supporting them in getting into leadership themselves. And that is the beginning, I guess, of how I started working with women and working with women around balancing the variety, the multiple, the many, many, many roles that they have beyond the work that they do in institutions and organisations, the leadership that they show in those places. And it was in answering some of those calls around, could you come and talk to us? Would you would you consider coaching me? That I have kind of ended up where I am now, I guess. So something in your answer there struck me uh, that I'd love to d- dive into a little bit more, which is you kind of called out the abundance of identities that women hold, especially women from marginalized backgrounds. And something that you had told me before we started recording was that you're often finding yourself at odds with existing power structures, existing expectations, ways of doing things. Um, and I'm curious how you see sort of that multiplicity of identities impacting the way women find themselves or or lead themselves in the work um, that involves these traditional structures and systems? Mm, such a such a great question and something I'm really um, obsessed with at the moment, actually. I turned up to my third headship having been quite burnt in my second by trying to do just that juggle, by trying to balance being a kind of being the person who can show up and lead a whole institution and also dealing with some very challenging narratives around motherhood and what you're supposed Mm -hmm. to do. And those narratives partly self-inflicted, but very strongly articulated by other people around me. People are really happy to talk about motherhood and they're really happy to talk about leadership, but they're really happy to talk about them at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so I turned up to my third headship and I'd really wrestled with this idea. And I remember speaking to this new group of staff and saying, you know, I have 200 people there looking at me, arms crossed, you know, what's this woman going to bring then? And I remember saying, I, I'm, in, I'm a mum to a, to a toddler, a young, a young kid, and um, I'm not going to be available here until seven at night. I'm just not going to be that person. I am going to be a person who will back you, who will have their door open when I'm here. I am going to be a person who's going to be interested in your lives. I am going to be a person who will give you a huge smile in the corridor and all of those things, but I'm not going to be able to be here in the evening. And not only that, I don't want to be here in the evening because I have a child and I have a family and I have other things to do. And for me, that felt like an enormous hurdle. And now when I look back, I think what I was trying to do there was articulate that I'm a leader and I'm a parent. But I wasn't also trying to articulate that I'm a leader and I'm a parent and my role as a black woman in society means something different. And the fact that I've had to really work to get to this position means something different to what it will mean to the white man who was in this role before me. But I'm also a friend and I have friends who lead me. And I'm also a daughter and I have parents who are reaching an age where they're going to need something as well. And I also have concerns about my body and my health. And I also have a spiritual practice that I would like to spend some time engaging in. You know, it could go on and on and on because the multiplicity of our lives is absolutely vast. And it strikes me now that that brave move to bring two dimensions, just about two dimensions of my life, to these few hundred people sitting in front of me felt like the biggest deal. Mm-hmm. And the work I'm interested in now is how do we bring five, six, seven dimensions of that into institutions that typically are only interested in the one, you know, there might be the odd, oh, how's your child's birthday party been? But, but, but you know, we're pretty much interested in the one. I'm interested now in how we bring all of those, as many of those dimensions as we possibly can, with boldness, with, you know, great courage to the workplace. Because for me, that's where the leadership becomes really interesting. 
witnessing how you've been able to navigate the nine dimensions of your life and still bring that thing in under budget on time and you know mm-hmm. with everything intact that's where it gets juicy yeah i am going to indulge my own curiosity for a moment here and i would love i'd love to know like what are some of the changes that you think need to happen whether it's in education specifically or in organizations across the board so that more people and and I think we're talking about all people here, right? 100%. Uh, can bring the many dimensions of their identity uh, to their work and to the way that that work is structured. Mm, I think I, I'm I'm grappling with it, um, and I think that there's something. Certainly, what has worked for me has been really surfacing my values quite meticulously really taking a lot of care about how my values shape the things that I feel I need to do and be in the world. And what's so interesting is that when I used and started to use that lens, there was a lot more on the horizon that I was yet to bring to the world than was currently evident in my work life. Mm -hmm. And it was almost that that stuff on the horizon, that legacy piece, I always like to describe it as the, you know, the, the connection between this incredible ancestry and the legacy that I'm to leave is fueled by all of those dimensions. I can't get there without pushing forth on all fronts. Mm. And I don't know what the shift is, Tara, in terms of how we, how we articulate that in workplaces, because I don't know that there is an, I don't know that there is a tool. I don't know that there's a process or a structure or a framework. It feels like a quality and it feels to me that Mm. the quality is great courage. And Mm. uh, I've I've been thinking about this in parallel with thinking about how, how social justice movements march on. And they're almost the bit by bit by bit. The, you know, the, the one step after the other over 20 years that you see people taking, that is the social justice movement. They're not the big moments. They're not that we've discovered that we need to bring more well-being to the workplace. How about <laughs> we talk about this? That You know, they're not found in those kind of pops mm-hmm. of, um, of sudden interest. They're found in step by step by step. We get braver. We, we, we're more courageous. We're more aligned to our own values. We are more committed to ourselves as human beings. We're more committed to what's on the horizon, to the to the great mother load we're supposed to be here to deliver, and less concerned about the immediacy of what that means in terms of how I show up to the office today. Yeah. It sounds like I asked sort of a very top-down question, and you gave me a (laughs) bottom-up answer. (laughs) That um, it's not so much that there are specific changes that we need to make in our workplaces, although there are. Mm -hmm. It's It's that the motivation and the impetus for those changes comes from people bringing their whole selves to work like you did when you stood up in front of that meeting and said, I'm a leader and I'm a mother of a toddler. And, you know, here's what that means. Um, Does that, am I interpreting you correctly? Absolutely. And, And it's interesting because when I stood up and said, I'm a mother and I'm a leader, and, you know, I've said many other things as well to that group, I became emboldened to say more. What happened was that human beings came to my door and said, I'm also mm. a parent. And and you're absolutely right. You know, what's good for, what's great for women is great for men. It's great for everybody. Yep. It's, it, it, we're, we're about creating great workplaces. So I had parents because this was the moment that parents could say, ah, oh, we have a leader who's a parent. I'll go to this leader who's a parent and say, I have this thing. My kid's got this thing. I'd really like to go. Is that okay? And then I had people come to my door who were parents who happened to be women who felt that they'd been held back as a consequence of taking maternity leave. Mm. And they saw in me somebody who maybe they could have that human conversation with. And and it, the bigger it gets, the bigger it gets. And the more people come to you with their lives and the more opportunity we have to see how multidimensional people's lives are and the more comfortable they feel with the multidimensions of their lives. 
And the more energy is created because we don't have to drag around all of the excuses that we are constantly dragging into our workplaces about why we can't just show up and be the one-dimensional leader that we're supposed to be. We actually free that resource up and are able to show up as humans. Revolutionary. <laughs> totally. I, yeah. And I mean, that's so my experience too. The more willing I am to bring a whole human perspective to my work, the more whole humans come to work with me or come be parts of our community or just, you know, listen to the show or read the, the newsletter. Um, and the more human conversations that I can have then as well. And it, it really does feel like it kind of takes on a life of its own. Um, I'm curious what prompted sort of the move toward building out an independent career outside of the educational system, outside of existing structures, and um, sort of how that transition came to be. Mm -hmm. it, it was always coming. And uh, as I said, there was a, there were a, a, a series of women who said it would be great if you would coach me. And I refused for a long time. <laughs> I refused to coach people because I felt as though I just want to be able to show up and be this human being without having to help anybody else. And there was a moment that I realized that perhaps this was the trail of breadcrumbs and maybe I ought to give it a go. And uh, found great joy actually and found great, great opportunity to serve in, in, in coaching women at, at that point. And then there was... There were a combination of things, Tara. I'd love to say that there was just this kind of, I want to break free and I'm going to set up my own business. But actually what happened was Brexit. Oh. <laughs> so Brexit happened at the same time as an opportunity for a big promotion. I'd been working as a head teacher. I'd then um, gotten promoted into an executive leadership role. And you know, sometimes there are those forks in the road that really commit you to three years of one thing or three years of something completely different. And it felt like I've been at that fork. I was at that fork three years previous. I'd probably at a similar fork two years before that. And it felt like now's the moment to take the other fork to say, I'm, I'm not going to continue working for the, the institution. Um, so Brexit happened, the fork in the road came and there was an opportunity that I that I decided to take to move to Denmark. And in moving to Denmark, it became obvious that I was going to need to also make the move to, to start working for myself, which has been an absolute pleasure and a joy. And, you know, in many ways appealed to the, to the part of me that just loves to start new things and loves to, to throw myself into new things. And it, it probably felt as though it was going to be much more of a new thing than it ended up being, because what I hadn't banked on was that the trail of breadcrumbs that I had picked up and, you know, the bits of work I had been doing and the coaching I had been doing and the talking I had been doing and the showing up as a human being that I had been doing had actually created a bit of momentum of its own. And, and so there was a moment that I thought I'm setting up a coaching and consultancy and it felt as though everyone else was saying, I thought you already did that. I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Okay. So I so I so I found myself with this um, with this coaching and with this coaching role primarily, and uh, in Denmark, working with women and working with people who uh, held minority ethnic um, identities and supporting them into leadership roles, and at the same time trying not to gaslight them because you know, those leadership roles are not always safe places for women or people who hold mm -hmm. minority identities to, to be in. So treading that careful line between these are the things that are going to be possible and these are the things that are also going to be probable when you get into those, into those leadership roles. And then last year, George Floyd was killed and the impact obviously globally was enormous. But the impact on schools and on institutions that I'd been familiar with working on uh, within the UK was really astonishing to me and actually quite upsetting because we've had our own issues in, in the UK. We've had many, many, many issues. We've had many opportunities for particularly public sector organisations to really grasp what social justice would look like, the impact of structural racism the 
deep problems with institutional racism in many of our institutions and across them. And yet it was in this moment that many institutions I'd been working with suddenly took the opportunity to look at themselves. And so what happened was what had happened before was that people reached out to me assuming that I was doing this work, assuming that I was kind of Mm -hmm. somehow already doing it. (laughs) Mystery people (laughs) would email me and say... (laughs) I love what you're doing. Do you think you could come and help us? Um, and I, I, I had uh, hundreds of people's org- organizations reach out uh, and, and, and people want to talk about how to behave and what to do. And people were interested in coaching and people felt that, you know, there was this, this huge energy towards doing something. And I think because I held a slightly unicorn status of being, you know, having been one of the 3% of head teachers who'd kind of been talking about social justice for a long time, having a really good understanding of the education system in the UK and also being somebody that had been in the DEI space for a long time, there was an attraction to working with me. And once again, just as with the coaching, I felt like, can I just not be this person? Could it, could it just not be me? Because this feels like a really convenient for other people identity to hold, to be the one that you can just reach out to and that will help you do this work. Could it just, can I just get on with living in Denmark and being coach, please? And, it, and, and as ever, I felt this, you know, is this something I'm being called towards? Is this helpful? Is it convenient? And I went with helpful. I went with, could it be of service? Could it be helpful? Could this move something on? And remember having a conversation with my coach and saying, I'm going to do two things now. (laughs) I'm going to set up a business Mm -hmm. which is kind of coaching women and it's also consulting with organizations who want to do this work and they want to do it differently and they want to be better at it. And they feel like two very distinct and disparate pieces of work. But my belief is that those people who reach out to me are reaching out because they want to do this work differently, because they want to show up differently. Because the consistent thing is, is that I haven't changed. I haven't said Mm -hmm. anything other than the thing I've always been saying, which is that we need to bring deep levels of compassion to ourselves and deep levels of humility and compassion into our organizations. And so if they want to work with me, then I'll go with it. And so that's kind of how I've ended up where I am now. You'll hear more from Angie in just a minute, but first a word from our What Works partner. What Works is brought to you by Mighty Networks. Now, the so-called creator economy has been getting some serious attention lately. Traditional media are confounded by people creating content, building audiences, and making money online. But what's really going on here? Is it the viral TikTok stars and Instagram influencers that have it all figured out? Do you have to amass millions of followers to make it in the creator economy? Mighty Networks wanted to find out, so they hired an independent research firm to study the creator economy. And what they found is completely counter the mass media narrative and probably quite familiar to you as a listener of What Works. In short, the creators who are thriving today own their platforms, niche down to hyper-specific audiences, invest in community, and create their own network effects. And the biggest non-surprise? People are making the same amount of money with direct sales to as few as 30 customers that the stars are making with 100,000 followers or 2 million views. Want to learn more? Go to newcreatormanifesto.com. That's newcreatormanifesto.com. I want to pull at that thread just a little bit more because you know i've i've talked to so many people in the last year and a half um at different points who experienced 
a deluge of opportunities, whether it was um, DEI consultants or whether it was, you know, a marketing agency or, you know, health coaches. Like it's been across the board mm. um, at different times as as attitudes or as questions change in the zeitgeist and, and sort of how the temperature changes around the pandemic. Um, and I'm really fascinated by how those that abundance of opportunities can change the way we see our own work or not change the way we see our own work. And the question that pops into my mind in terms of your work is, I imagine that the organizations that are coming to you, yes, they want to do this work differently. And also they have an idea of what that differently looks like, or they have an idea of what they think they're buying. Mm -hmm. And you have an idea of how you want to deliver that work. And I'm kind of curious if you could uh, tell us sort of how you handle that and also what those two different things are, if, if that is in fact the case. Mm, it is absolutely the case and feeling very real at the moment. One of the things that I've been doing DEI work for, for about 20 years in schools and um, one of the things that really strikes me is that it isn't actually work. It's not tasks. It's not things that you do. It's the way that you do things. And... The way that you do things doesn't differ from the way that you would do things if you were describing yourself as somebody who was an ethical leader. It doesn't mm -hmm. differ from the way that you would describe things if, if you were thinking about yourself as a compassionate leader. It's the way that you are in the world. It's the humanity that you bring to situations. And so I set out a very clear offer that was based on the way that we do things, that was based on partnering with people because collaboration is huge in my world and because we're not going to change, as far as I can see, any of these institutions or the way that they have baked in structural inequity through telling. We're going to change it through collaborating and rebuilding, partnering to do something differently. I'm an English teacher. So narrative is a huge part of the way that I work. And one of the things that I was really curious about was how have institutions created a narrative that no longer serves them? And what if we were to take the narrative that you feel is probably quite a fixed thing, just rewrite it. And just take this opportunity, this moment in the arc of time to say, yep, we're changing the narrative, we're rewriting it. So we're partnering, we're collaborating towards a new narrative. We're not going to do a series of tasks, but we're going to do the things we already do differently. We're going to bring new levels of humanity to it. So I set out this agenda and everyone's like, great, sounds amazing, sounds perfect, sounds brilliant. And I actually don't describe myself just as an anti-racist practitioner, although that's seemingly what people wanted. And in the UK, people do mm -hmm. tend to use the term anti-racist DEI interchangeably. People don't really know mm -hmm. what they're looking for always. But I'm interested in diversity, equity, inclusion. Those are the things that I'm interested in and those are the things that I want to explore with organisations. Around the, the time of, of the, the killing of George Floyd, there was a lot more openness um, and we were deep in the pandemic as well. There felt like there was a lot more openness to working differently and it felt like there was a great amount of uh, warmth and trust actually in my leadership to, to do those. There was a, there was, there was a great amount of, um, I, I found that people had a, people felt reassured by that approach. There was something in the contracting and the slowing down and the looking in that really appealed to the mood. Mm -hmm. And what I'm noticing now is that there are some organizations that remain as committed to rewriting the narrative and there are other organisations who I think are feeling the snapback to where we are comfortable in institutions. The snapback to continuing with the existing narrative, but if it's okay, just making a few tweaks. The snapback to it would be easier not to have to think about these things, but for you to mm -hmm. tell me what strategies and tools we can employ in order to say that we've got DEI right. So it feels like we've moved from this opportunity to have deep conversations to to really kind of 
feed into the DNA of, of organizations what it means to have powerful, courageous conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion towards, in some cases, more of an interest in speeding through a set of tasks, tools, processes, and probably policies that will help us say that we've got this right. And actually, I think, Tara, I really understand where people are at because it also we've exploded out of this pandemic back into an expectation of human beings to do things that are not human doings you know to work Mm -hmm. at pace to to continue to act as though everything's fine when it clearly isn't and for those colleagues I have working in schools I understand that this is now starting to feel like it needs to take a back seat um I'm having to really stay the course of the integrity that I feel the work that I do has. And uh, mm-hmm. that has its own complications. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I love the question about how have institutions created a narrative that no longer serves them. And I love turning other people's questions back on themselves. <laughs> back on them. So I am curious if there is a time in your professional life that you can point to holding on to a narrative that wasn't serving you any longer and how you rewrote that. Mm, Absolutely. I mean, for for much of my career, I wanted to become a head teacher, wanted to become a senior leader. And I had a narrative about myself, which was that I bucked the trend. I was a black woman who hadn't had it hard, had Mm. chose to um, offer up a narrative of my life that was one of relative privilege, which indeed it was. Uh, I Mm -hmm. chose to omit any challenge because I didn't want to be seen as the complainer or the person Mm -hmm. who one could roll their eyes at. I had a chameleon-like status for most of my early career and I would blend into and assimilate with whatever the appropriate and necessary group uh, needed me to do. So I operated very much with a a, uh, powerful, intelligent black woman who is one of us. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it actually goes back further than that I mean that that was my kind of leadership narrative and that's how I always feel like that's how I got there because I didn't cause any bother I you know Mm -hmm. I blended in everybody could accept me I was articulate and witty and wise and all of those things Mm -hmm. as a child I also did this and you know I used to reject I used to refuse to read books by African-American writers my mum would like buy these books and I was like no I don't think so I went to university and refused to study African-American literature refused to I Think, I think you'll find I'm far more interested in 19th century English writers. I think you'll find. <laughs> um, and so there was a lot of unpacking to do at various points. In my 20s, I did a bit. And then again, in my third leadership role, where for the first time, but I was already, I was in my late 30s then, I acknowledged that I had a role, part of my service, part of the legacy, part of the bigger piece that exists over there on the horizon, is that I am a black woman who has experienced pretty much every microaggression going. I have experienced multiple challenges in order to do the things that I now do, to to overcome in order to do the things that I now do. And it's serving no one. It's not serving me, but more importantly, it's serving no one else for me to gaslight in that way, for me to show up as a person who, it's fine, I don't know what your big problem, I don't know what you're complaining about. It's perfectly easy to be able to get a head shift. It's like that narrative serves no one. No. And for those black women who I was meeting and was saying, I don't, it's so hard, it's so hard. It felt, it, it started to feel like injury that I was inflicting. Because I wasn't, mm. I wasn't speaking a truth, actually. And so rewriting that was a sort of process of undoing and unlearning and unlearning how to behave in situations that, that, 
had intimidated me so much and I'm learning how to behave uh, with and in the company of powerful white men has been the biggest unlearning. The hardest mm. work I've done has been holding my own as somebody that is circular, chaotic, more on the hippie side of anything, <laughs> you know, unpolished, not necessarily that well put together, sometimes articulate, sometimes no words, sometimes crying, sometimes not. It's like... So what you're saying is you're a human. I think I'm an actual <laughs> human, it turns out. An actual human. I mean, you. Uh, yeah, I mean, it strikes me that that story of being, uh, how did you, you were a black woman who hadn't had it, have it hard. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, <laughs> that that story of relative privilege is a story caused by trauma and violence in the first place, right? Like you wouldn't have that story if it wasn't integral to keeping yourself safe and accepted mm -hmm. and belonging in a community where all signs point to you don't belong yeah. here. I mean, it's it's a huge leap. It's pervasive and it's it's in everything. And now, you yeah. know, I, I do this work and I deliberately bring my narrative to the work that I do. So many people yeah. have heard aspects of my stories. And I like to talk about both of those dimensions because they coexist, don't they? Our privileges always yeah. coexist with the challenges that we've had. And um, but but what I love about my use of narrative now, and certainly my own narrative, what I desperately try and encourage women to do when I work with them, is to be the author of them, because we are the authors of our narratives. And that doesn't mean that we're constantly fictionalizing them, but it does mean that we choose mm -hmm. when to amplify certain bits and when not to. It's... I think a bit of a myth that there is this sort of one version of reality that everybody needs to know and understand. And actually, there is much more help, opportunity uh, for influence, for inspiration, when I amplify particular dimensions of my narrative. And in my work, when I amplify what it was like to be the one black child in my school and to have racist violent racist abuse on my first day of school as an 11 year old when I amplify that dimension of my story and I'm as I was today delivering a conference in front of a group of um, mainly white leaders they feel it they mm -hmm. feel they feel the responsibility that they should have had for me as an 11 year old child and when I set that against some of the enormous privileges that I've had, the people in that room who are people of colour who were struggling to work out why does it look like this for her and this for me, are contextualised. Those experiences are contextualised. Oh, because she had parents who backed her, who had the financial resources, who were able to ensure that she was in no doubt that she would go to university. So our stories, are, they're complex and they're useful and they are helpful for other people. But we have to master them. And I feel this really, really passionately, that we can't kind of let our stories just kind of drift about as sort of untethered bits of information. They are, again, there's, there's a narrative arc that's important and we need to locate ourselves, I believe, at different points along that arc at different times for different purposes. But... Uh, so, so sorry, to go back to your, your original question, the rewriting of my narrative um, at different points has been really, has been really necessary, but actually it's been, it's been a, it's been more of a completion of the narrative. It's been to include all parts of the journey rather than to uh, cherry pick the parts that I didn't think were appropriate in, in front of certain audiences for, for much mm. of my life. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I can't believe we're 41 minutes into this conversation. <laughs> I'm just asking you about this now. Uh, but when you did send me a message with updates, you were telling me all about the luminary mm. aspect of your brand. And that word is 
glorious <laughs> and I want to know what it means to be a luminary, um, why you chose that word, where it came from and how it applies across the different threads of your work now. Mm, it is glorious and I wish you could see this room properly because it's full of images of lighthouses which I'm just obsessed, oh. obsessed with. And um, So for me, obviously luminary has this, um, carries with it this um, idea it's really compelling idea of people who are inspirational and they always feel to me the luminaries to be people that have been planted upon the earth rather than made of the earth and rather than create mm. kind of born of society but actually for me luminary and the reason that the word means a lot to me is more to do with the the original sense really of giving light so, so, so for me, it's less about being an inspirational human being, although that obviously plays a part. It's, it's so much more about a belief in human beings as light givers, that we all just have this necessary reason you were born light. And as a teacher, you often get the opportunity to see it in kids. And as we get older... And certainly as you start coaching people, you think, where did that go? Where did the, where did the opportunity for, you, for your light to be recognized go? And as I started looking for it, I started stumbling upon it in my work. So I would start talking to women, I'd be halfway through a, through a coaching, um, series of coaching sessions or, or even a third of the way through and suddenly somebody says, you know, that they've been quietly writing this book and you're like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> what do you mean you're quietly writing this book? That sounds incredible. Or I was running a program and, you know, one of the women on the call said she's got this idea. It's a small thing at the moment, but it's a nightclub and it's for women of colour and for women who wear a hijab to be able to come and just walk out with their sisters. But I was like, mind blown, you know, just <laughs> yeah. like again and again, people are incredible. So this word luminary means a lot to me because I really do think that people, people have this light giving source within them. And what interests me is getting to those conversations, having those conversations mm -hmm. with people that really get to it, get to the light and also bring people back to that sense that just because it's there, is an opportunity to shine it. I believe mm. that there are luminaries, everyday luminaries, pretty much everywhere we go. And I love those conversations that elicit that. And I also think that organisations and institutions in particular have a responsibility to be luminary. And that's because we're in times where one could say we have no evidence of that in our political spheres, that for many people that you know, live in, in, in kind of secular communities. We don't have those beacons necessarily in our spiritual lives. Some, some of us do, but many of us don't. Mm. And so what we do have are institutions that take up a vast amount of our time that many of us invest a lot of energy into, whether that's sending our kids to schools or needing to use hospital services or needing to access policing or housing or any of those things. And in there rests the opportunity to be luminary, to shine light, to be beacon, to be something that people can walk towards because it says over here is a dimension, is an element, is a moment of safety, could be safe harbour, could be resting place. And so there's something both very exciting for me about the agency of being a human being who is a luminary and also uh, there's something very reassuring and calming for me about ensuring that institutions recognize their role as being harbor as luminaries mm, i love that um, well, as Ezra Klein said at the end of one of his recent interviews, sometimes you still have more questions, but you can't get a better last answer. <laughs> so let's leave things there. Angie, what are you excited about right now? I am super excited about my new program, Sovereign Woman, which is a group program I have for women. So working on a very slow and steady 
um, launch and just working and talking to women about about that. I'm really excited about next year and about how my work continues to evolve and hopefully how the strands of my work of this coaching and this work in the DEI space continue to cross over. I'm excited about the new narratives that will emerge from that um, and, you know, generally excited about human potential, Tara. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad someone is. I continue Because be. over here across the pond, it can be difficult. <laughs> Angie Brown, thank you so much. This conversation was a real light for me, and I appreciate you shining your light for all of the What Works listeners, telling your story, kind of picking apart some of these pieces that, you know, we often touch on here, but having a much more explicit conversation about them is so important to me. And um, it was just, it was just lovely. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much for having me. Towards the end of our conversation, Angie said that part of stepping into this next phase of her life and work has been about integrating all of the different identities and stories she contains. She's no longer cherry picking who she'll show up as or which story she'll tell depending on the audience. As I've been doing my own work around self and personal narrative this year, this is what I keep coming back to as well. What kind of structure can I create so that I can show up as my whole self and tell my whole story? How do I need to approach my relationships so that I'm not hiding certain identities I hold? Now, these aren't easy questions and it's not an easy task, especially if any of your identities don't exactly fit into dominant culture. And as I think about what I want to explore with the podcast in 2022, it's very much related to these questions. I'm going to be exploring conversations and themes around what I'm calling entrepreneurship for humans. What does a business look like that leverages our humanity? What does a business look like that serves humans? Some of these conversations will be more idea-oriented, some will be more exploratory, and still others will be structural or logistical. My hope is that there's something you can take away from each episode that gives you a new way to incorporate your own humanity into the way you think about and do business. Next week, I'm going to take a sort of break and I'll have a mini episode for you about rethinking the assumption that there's a scarcity of attention out there. Till then, go check out Angela Brown at angelabrown.co.uk. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. And Marty Seafelt edited this episode. If you love the What Works podcast, you're going to love What Works Weekly, my weekly newsletter exploring entrepreneurship at the intersection of culture, leadership, and power. Go to explorewhatworks.com slash weekly to sign up.